Judges chapter 17, let's give attention to God's word, beginning with verse 1 and reading through to the end of the chapter. Judges 17, verse 1. Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me, I took it. And his mother said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith, and he made it into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. The man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols, and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite and was staying there. The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? So he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to stay. Micah said to him, Dwell with me, and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since I have a Levite as priest. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Judges chapter 17. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to this portion of your word, you would help us to learn from it what we need. Lord, your word is a mirror. It holds up to us a reflection so that we might see who we truly are. We pray that you would help us to see who we truly are in ourselves, that we might know there is no hope of us being justified by our own efforts, of us being truly righteous. But we pray that we would also see ourselves as we are in Christ, justified in him, sanctified in him, glorified in him. And so, Lord, we pray that even through this passage today, our Lord Jesus would be glorified in our hearts, our identities in Christ would be made more clear and more secure to us, and we would be enabled more and more to live out of the new man, to put off the old man and put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, in true righteousness after the image of our creator. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. As we come to the closing chapters of the book of Judges, you probably notice that we're not starting with Judges chapter 1. We're starting with Judges chapter 17, and my purpose is just to go from this section through to the end of the book. Now, there are a couple of reasons for that, and one reason is that this is probably the most neglected portion of of the book of Judges. In Sunday school, kids will often learn stories about Gideon and Samson, especially out of the Judges, but we don't often teach kids about Judges 17 
and following. And there are some reasons for that, as will become apparent, Lord willing, as we continue in the series. But if you think about the book of Judges, it's roughly divided into three main parts. There's a sort of a preface where you have the introduction to the historical situation, where the author comments on the pattern, what life was like during the period of the Judges. And what life was like during the period of the Judges is that the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord would sell them into bondage from foreign oppression. The people would cry out. The Lord would raise up a deliverer, and the land would have rest. That's the general pattern. And that general pattern that's explained at the beginning of the book of Judges is then illustrated with reference to 12 different judges, starting with Othniel and ending with Samson. Now, that pattern tends to break down a little bit as time goes on. You can see that things, in some ways, are getting worse for Israel as time goes by. And then you have these chapters at the end of the book, which are often treated as though they were tacked on, as though they were just an appendix. Now, these chapters are not in chronological order. The events that happened here actually took place early in the book of Judges, not at the very end. So why are they here? What purpose do they serve? Well, if the main body of the book of Judges shows that even Israel's leadership was not great, you go from Othniel, who's pretty good, to Gideon, who is pretty good but does some questionable things, to Samson, who's a total disaster, Well, was the fault in Israel, was the blame for the Israelites' misbehavior, for their continual going astray, was the blame for that to be pinned on the judges? No, not even a little bit. It's not that the judges had no responsibility for what they did, but these chapters show that the people were also corrupted. And of course, you already had that indicated in the main body of the book with that Repeated phrase that the children of Israel did what was evil. They did what was wrong in the sight of the Lord. Now, these chapters have a refrain that pops up four times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Two times when that refrain comes up, it's also added, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that phrase corresponds to what you find in the body of the book. They did what was evil in in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, what is right in the eyes of the Israelites is evil in the eyes of the Lord. There are two ways of looking at a very similar phenomenon. Now, in the body of the book, the recurring problem is idolatry. The recurring problem is the children of Israel joining the worship of other gods to the worship of the one true God. They go after the Baals and they go after the Ashtoreths. In other words, they go after the male and female deities who were known in the Canaanite culture that they were surrounded by. In this chapter, the problem is a little bit different. As we were reading, you might have noticed that we're reading about a very religious household. These people are serious about their religion. There are three characters that we find in Judges chapter 17. We find Micah, we find his mother, and we find a Levite. We're not going to find out his name until the end of chapter 18. 
But those are the three characters here. Now, in order to appreciate this chapter, we need to know that it's part of a bigger story. Chapters 17 and 18 make one story together. There's Micah and there's how he came to have a shrine, which in terms of those times was a very well-endowed shrine. He had all the images. He had all the religious equipment. He even had a Levite to be his priest. And then he loses all of that when roving Danites who haven't been able to take the territory assigned to them are headed northwards to Laish to conquer a place for themselves to live. And they decide that it would come in handy for them to have all of Micah's religious apparatus to be a blessing to their tribe instead of being a blessing to Micah's household. We'll look at those things in more detail, Lord willing, as we progress in the series. But in order to appreciate chapter 17, you have to know that it's connected to chapter 18, and you have to know that Micah is going to lose everything he acquires in this chapter. Otherwise, you don't really get the point. Well, let's jump into Judges chapter 17 then. What is going on here? Well, there is a woman, and she's pretty well-to-do. She has 1,100 pieces of silver. That's a pretty good sum, and we know that in a couple of ways. One, it is the sum of money that the Philistine lords promised to give Delilah for betraying Samson. Well, Samson had a significant bounty on his head. The Philistines really ramped that up because they were so frustrated over how much damage Samson had done to them and over how many times they'd thought they'd gotten him and he'd gotten away. So they gave a big bounty to Delilah to deliver Samson into their hands. So that's one way you know that 1,100 pieces of silver is a pretty hefty sum. You could also deduce that it's a pretty hefty sum because 1% of that 10 pieces of silver was a decent annual wage for the Levite where he was like, yeah, that sounds good to me. I'll do that. So that must mean that 1,100, if, if 10 will keep you going through a whole year, along with room and board, if 10 will keep you going, 1,100, you're well-to-do. You're doing very nicely. So somehow Micah's mother had come to be quite wealthy. But somebody had stolen her silver. Well, understandably, she was upset about that, so she pronounced a curse on whoever had taken her silver. But what she didn't know... It was her son who had taken her silver. He hears the curse, and he's a little perturbed. Now he's worried the curse is going to fall on him. So that motivates him to make confession. Now, he doesn't use the word stolen. He just says, I took it. I took it. He avoids the word stolen, but he gives it back because he's afraid of being cursed. So on the one hand, you have this family. His name means who is like Jehovah. And you have a woman who says, oh, the Lord bless you, my son. They seem to be very religious. And they're worshipers of the Lord. They're not pursuing the Baals. They're not worshiping Ashtoreth. They're worshiping the one true God. But you also begin to think, no, hold on a moment. There's something wrong here. First of all, Micah is stealing from his mom. Well, Proverbs talks about that. A child who steals from his parents and says, oh, that's no big deal. You know, it's just my mom and dad. Well, Proverbs has some harsh words for children who take that approach. Stealing from your family is still stealing. 
and it is roundly condemned and prohibited by Scripture. But then you also have everything that's going to happen where, first of all, nobody seems to want this cursed silver. Micah says, here's the silver, I return it. What does she do with it? Well, first she says, be blessed by the Lord. Why does she say that? Is she really so pleased that Micah confessed sin? I think it's more likely that she was trying to undo the curse. She pronounced a curse, that scared Micah. Now she's trying to undo the curse because she doesn't want the curse to fall on her son. So you see already an element of superstition here. But then she wants to dedicate that money to the Lord. So she returns it to Micah so that he will take care of it. Micah still doesn't want it. He's like, no, you take it back. He's not sure the curse has been detached from the money. That's how I would read that. So they're passing it back and forth because they don't want the curse to fall on either one of them, but especially not on me. And so the mother pronounces a blessing, which is a little inappropriate, but then she also dedicates it to the Lord. What is she doing? She's trying to undo the effects of her curse. In other words, they are very religious, but it's a superstitious kind of religion. It's not really a biblically based approach to God, to his word, to his worship. Well, and then this silver that was wholly dedicated to the Lord, what do they do with it? Well, she takes 200. Now that still leaves 900 pieces from wholly dedicated 1,100 to 200. There was a discount there somewhere. Somebody's keeping some of it. And what did they do with the silver that they did follow through on dedicating to the Lord? Well, they gave it to the silversmith to make them an image. At this point, you're sure there's something wrong because you remember the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. And the reason given is that the Lord is jealous. The true God cannot be worshipped by idols. And yet this silver, part of the silver that's dedicated to the Lord, what do they do? They make an idol out of it. Whether it was one image that was carved and then overlaid with silver, whether it was two images is a little bit unclear to me after consulting the commentaries on this subject, but that doesn't really affect the main point. You're also told that Micah had household idols or teraphim. These might have been images of ancestors. These might have been sort of good luck charms. But Micah sets all of this up in a shrine. So right now they're thinking, okay, we dodged the curse. We managed to turn the curse into a blessing. And Mike ordains one of his sons. You find out in the next chapter when other men gather together to help Micah reclaim his stolen gods and other goods that he was probably providing religious services for everybody. In other words, he funneled this money into building and maintaining and providing for having a local shrine so people could come to worship, to give their offerings, to ask for divine guidance, to request healing, or whatever are the other reasons that people come to seek God in this idolatrous way. And Micah probably charged for that. So it became another revenue stream for him. So it was convenient for him in a way, if you will, to have a little God house there, a shrine, to have the whole setup with the ephod and the teraphim and the carved image and all of that. 
And he didn't have anybody better. So at first he ordained one of his sons as a priest. Now at this point, it is very, very, very clear. This is a highly religious family. They're the religious specialists in the neighborhood, if you will. This is like the pastor and his family. They're the religious specialists. But what kind of religion? They serve Jehovah in name, but in reality, who are they serving? Well, they're dominated by self-interest, and they're dominated by superstition. This is one of the ways that the passage holds up a mirror to us. In light of the fact that you're in church this morning, I feel pretty comfortable saying that you're probably somewhat religious, maybe very religious. And I'm not against that, obviously. I am a religious professional, if you want to put it in those terms. And it's good for people to be religious. But there's a big difference between genuine piety, between true worship of the true God and merely superstitious, human, sinful religion. We are sinners and we bring our sin to our religious practices as well as to every other element of our lives. And of course, that's true even for those who worship the true God and who worship him according to his word. We still come to worship loaded down with sin. We understand that. I'm not trying to pretend that we're somehow different than that. But what becomes the guiding principle? In the case of Micah, sin, the sin of idolatry, the sin of what you could call folk religion becomes his guiding principle. Now, we understand that we don't fully live up to our principles, but hopefully our principles themselves are not sinful. Do you understand the difference? It's one thing to say, my principle is that I worship God in spirit and in truth. I don't keep that perfectly. It's something else to say, I've given up on that principle and I worship God in the flesh and according to lies. Not living up to the principle of worshiping God in spirit and truth means we're falling short, but at least we have the right goal. Giving up on the principle means we've forgotten what worship is all about. So let's ask a couple of questions by way of application. Let's take for granted that we are religious people because we're here. How do we worship God? You know what? Let's, let's even go a step further. Let's take for granted that we are worshiping the true God. All right? Let's just assume those two great facts because those two things were there, were present in Judges chapter 17, and they should be present with us as well. Are we worshiping the true God according to his word? It's worthwhile to pause a moment and just think about that. Is our belief, is our view of God fundamentally shaped by what God says or by what we feel, by what we learn from some other source? You will run into people who say, that's what you think about God? Oh, I would never worship a God like that. Okay, we don't define, well, we shouldn't define who God is based on what we like and don't like. We should define who God is based on what God told us. What independent access do you have to the truth of God? Unless God reveals himself to you, you know nothing about God. 
Now, God has revealed himself, and so we can be confident, but that confidence needs to be based on God has revealed himself. Then again, there's people who worship God superstitiously. There's people who think that it's basically a magical approach. The words, the gestures, the expressions, your posture, things of that nature. There's all these different ways that are basically serving to manipulate God. And that's very clear with Micah and his mother. But what is the result of embracing that? There's a little detail in the Hebrew text that you can't pick up on an English translation. The first two times Micah's name is given, it's a fuller form. It's Mikai Hu, who is like Jehovah. But the rest of the times that Micah's name is used, the theophoric element, the Jehovah element of his name is dropped off and we're given a shortened form. Why is that? It's a subtle way for the author to communicate to us that Micah isn't worthy to bear the name of God because even though he professes to worship the true God, even though he knows the name of God, even though in a sense he was named after God in an appropriate way, yet by his behavior he shows that he's not a worshiper of the true God at all because the true God is not worshiped by these means. So that's revealed in Micah and his mother because of their approach to the silver, their approach to trying to avoid the curse that they invoked in the Lord's name. But it's also revealed very clearly at the end of the chapter where Micah congratulates himself and says, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as priest. There's a couple of mistakes baked into that one. One is that you can manipulate God. And that, in a sense, is the essence of superstition. That's the essence of folk religion. What does it do? It teaches you ways to manipulate God, ways to make sure that God does what you want. Now, that's a problem. God is far wiser than we are and is not subject to our manipulations. We can never twist God's arm. There is no magical ritual. There is no secret incantation that gets God to give you what you want, to do what you want him to do. When we pray, we offer up our desires. We don't try to twist God's arm. We just tell God, this is what we want. Out of what we want, give us what you know is best. And that's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You see, there's also a misconception here about what is important. For many people, religion is about making sure that God doesn't interfere with our plan for our lives. If you want to put it very bluntly, it's about buying God off so he doesn't get in our way. And if you think about people you've had conversations with, you almost certainly know Quite a few. That is their approach. They might even be churchgoers. They might even be in a reformed church. But that's their basic approach. I need God to bless me. So I'll do what I have to do to avoid God's anger and to secure his favor. 
They're approaching God like Micah did. Now, there's misconceptions there. There's misconceptions about can we manipulate God? There's misconceptions about what's really important. Because for them, what's really, they're, they're still dominated by this world. Their basic prayer, if they were honest, is my kingdom come, my will be done. I'll do what it takes to get God to go along with my program. Lots of people are very religious. But that's the style of religion. That's human, that's worldly, that's fleshly, that's sinful. That is not what God teaches. But even deeper than misconceptions about how to relate to God or what is really important is the misconception about who God is. Of course, that's also bound up with a misconception about ourselves, about what we should care about, what should matter to us. But there's a misconception about who God is. God is not like the gods of the nations, capricious beings who have to be placated, who have to be approached with these offerings and handled in this way so that they will do what we want. God is personal. God relates to us. God takes the initiative to relate to us in grace and mercy. And on the one hand, that means that God cannot be manipulated. But on the other hand, it means that we can actually trust him. You see, this is one of the huge problems with folk religion, with fleshly religion. God is never a God to be trusted. He's a God to be handled. He's a God to be managed. But if you're handling or managing God, you don't trust him. You don't rely on him. You don't lean on him. You don't think he's better than I know. His will is the standard of right and good. I can trust in him at all times. There's the basic difference. How do you approach God? Well, you need to approach God in keeping with his word. But you need to approach God as one to be trusted. Now Micah congratulates himself. Now the Lord will bless me. That wasn't what happened. The opposite of that happened. But buried deep under Micah's words, there is a truth. Because we are sinners, we need to be reconciled to God. And so it is the job of a priest to make peace between God and man, to open the way for God's blessings to flow. But in biblical religion, in genuine Christianity, we don't supply the priest. We don't hunt around and find a good candidate. God himself provides the priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, by his work, by his life and death and resurrection, by his ascension into heaven, by his session at God's right hand, he secures for us the real blessings, the ultimate blessings, not just the blessings of peace and prosperity in this life, though many times he is pleased to send those, but the really important blessings, the blessings of forgiveness of our sins, the blessing of a happy resurrection at the last day, the blessing of eternal life with God, the blessing of God's kingdom coming to us, the blessing of God's will being done in us and by us, the blessings of justification and sanctification. Those blessings are truly secured for us by our priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Lord will bless us. 
not because we have some random Levite. That was still a mistake. That was still not good enough. He had to be a son of Aaron. But now the Lord will bless us because we have the Lord Jesus as our only high priest. Amen.